0: On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. (laughs) Baruch atadonai, Adonai Eloheinu Ba re fin. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch ataronai elohainim elacholam. in haret. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us and has given us in love and goodness, your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen. The blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children. May the Lord bless and keep you May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast here at Benai Shalom. This Shabbat, we are beginning in the Book of Numbers. Our Torah portion is called B'midbar. And if you want to turn there to the Book of Numbers, you can join me. Let me give just a little bit of an introduction to the whole book of Numbers before I actually get into this first portion. Numbers is the third book in the Torah. It's the middle book of the five books, and in particular, The name for this book in the Hebrew is in the wilderness, B'midbar, that's in the wilderness. But in the English, we call it the book of Numbers because one of the things this book is gonna do is gonna take a census of the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt, not only take a census of them and the whole army of Israel, but it's gonna take a census of the Levites and the priests And then at the end of the experience of having gone through the wilderness before they cross over into the land, there's another census that's going to be taken. And the reason why that is is because in this event in the wilderness, if you'll recall, the children of Israel are going to balk at the idea of going in and taking the land. They're going to send spies in, and they're going to check out the land, and they're they're going to become afraid, and they're not going to trust the Lord. And so the Lord will say at that point, 10 times this people have tested me and that generation that doesn't want to obey me, they're going to die in the wilderness because out of their own mouth, they had said it would be better for us to die in the wilderness, you know, than go into this promised land. He said, okay, you got it. And so they're going to be dying in the wilderness. And so the book really kind of covers 40 years of the wilderness experience. The book also contains a series of other laws that add to the rest of the Torah, things that came forward from the Lord to Moses, from Mount Sinai, in addition to the Ten Commandments, and it formulates a lot of the instructions of the Torah. One of the most direct ones that we're going to find, and that's going to be about the time we get to Numbers chapter 15, God is going to emphatically say about this Torah that these commandments that are in the law of Moses, these commandments that are in the, in the Torah for us, they are for everyone. They are for the native born of Jacob. They are for the aliens, the strangers, and others that would join and believe in the God of Israel. These are the commandments for all peoples who would believe in the God of Israel. And that is a very profound statement that's being made in this book. Even Judaism does not accept that. Judaism teaches that the Gentiles are supposed to follow the Noachide laws, which are only seven laws, whereas the Jews, we get the Ten Commandments in the Torah. Well, Moses is gonna say in this book, and you wouldn't expect this book to be that profound When it comes to the instruction of God's commandments being to the whole world, but it does. Furthermore, this book is gonna go through and talk about the experiences of that generation that died in the wilderness, the different things that they did that tested the Lord, the different things that they did wrong, and that they were things that they had to go through and judgments they had to do. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us specifically those things that happened in the wilderness are for our admonition and instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. And Paul is basically saying all of these little lessons in the book of Numbers, all these things that happen, you and I today, believers of the Messiah coming toward the end of the ages, we're supposed to be paying attention to these lessons because those are the same tests and lessons that we have to deal with. And it's a little bit like we have the example, we have the proper answer, we need to study the book so that we have the answer when we are put to the same kinds of tests. And so as we go through this book, I'm going to try to point some of those out in particular that I think Paul was referencing and telling us it's appropriate for us. Now, I just gave you what we call in teaching a motivational statement. This book is important to you in your faith. And so I want you to pay attention to the things that are in here. Now, there are gonna be moments in this book, you're gonna go yawn, especially right at the first part, the book of numbers. We're gonna get a lot of numbers out here. Each of the tribes are gonna be numbered. The whole total of the men that can go to war are gonna be numbered. The priests are gonna be numbered. And everybody's going, Well, what in the world is all that for? I want to remind everyone that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were about as organized as a mob. In fact, that's all they were. There were a mob of people. There was native born. There were alien strangers. There were other slaves that had been freed. There's this whole collection of people that wanted to get out of Egypt and that seen the judgments of God upon Egypt, and they want to get out, and they get out, as you saw in the book that preceded this, Exodus, the events of them leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, going to Mount Sinai, and getting the Torah, and so forth. Well, this book is now gonna be addressing how in the world is God gonna transform this mob that has come out wanting freedom How's he going to organize them so that they can live correctly? And the way you do that is that you have to have rules. Everybody has to have an identity as to where they belong, and there has to be rules that we follow. If you're forming a club and you just want some people to get together, let's have a club. You got to make rules for the club, you got to define the club. Well, here we have the nation of Israel, and God is defining the nation of Israel, and he's establishing, are you ready for this? A theocracy. Not a democracy, not a republic. He's forming a theocracy. God really is the government, and we have this order that is set up and structured so that we know how it all flows together and how we all have a part. Now, a lot of people in the world that we live today, when you talk about numbers and and, and being counted, I'm sure you've heard the expression, well, I'm just a number there. And there's a lot of people who go to particularly larger assemblies, church, and so when you get in there, you sit in a pew, you go a while and you're just a number. You're just You're just somebody who fills that seat and you lack what you feel is the value of you being a part of that. And as a result, if that continues on, you get to the point where you don't feel there's any value whatsoever. Now, the flip side of that is, let's say you go somewhere and you're not counted to be a part of something. You know, you went to go out and play softball with your friends and nobody picked you. Nobody picked you on a team to play. Well, how, how do you feel about that? Feel terrible. You know, I, I didn't get counted with the team and, and so forth. So there, there's two sides to this business of counting. Now, what is the book of Numbers doing when it comes to counting? What is God doing when he counts? Well, one of the first things that we learn about his counting is he doesn't count noses. When he takes a count, every person comes in with a half shekel, which is a small coin of value. In fact, it's one of the smallest coins of value. And he comes in and he gives a half shekel. And that represents him, that that piece of silver, that has value. And they count up the number of shekels. And that determines how many people, and you've all been counted. God has a very unique way of when God's people are counted, they're counted with silver. Now, I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but the silver is the metal that represents redemption. And we have many instances throughout the scripture how silver is being used, and it speaks to the the spiritual theme of redemption. So the silver that you give, it's a testimony that you've received redemption. Now, that's what you wanna be counted for. When I I get up to the kingdom, I want God to count me and say, yeah, he's one of the redeemed ones. You know, he's the one that the Messiah provided redemption for it. And and, and man, that's a great value. I want that. I want to be counted in that. And essentially that's what's happening here. He instructs that when you count them, you have to count them with the half shekel. You have to count them with a piece of silver. So let's begin here looking at the scriptures and I'm still gonna address this. Why in the world did God set up the system to be able to count? Let's begin with the first words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let's set the date correctly here. It's the second year, and it is the first first of the second month. Now, what happened on the first month of the second year? They had set up the tabernacle, and they had ordained the priesthood. They had got the tabernacle up and running, and they had Aaron and his sons operating as priests. Now, on the very next month after that set up, he now instructs Moses, now I want you to count the people. I want the people to be now organized with leadership and be organized in tribes my background here. We have a banner that represents the tribe of Judah, banner over here that represents the tribe of Joseph. These particular banners are structured against the counting of the 144,000. But in the days of Moses, the tribe that really is here was Ephraim. Ephraim and Manassas were the two sons of Joseph. And in that count of the 144,000, the banner of Joseph represents Ephraim. So it's really Judah, and Ephraim, it really represents the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, in the history of Israel. And we're looking for the day, in God's final redemption of Israel, that these two tribes are gonna to come together become one in the hand of the Lord, as the prophet Ezekiel spoke of. But right now, we have a couple of banners for some of the tribes, and, and basically, God wanted to set up all the tribes and get them all structured and up and running. So it's the second month, exactly one month after the tabernacle has been established and set up. And he proceeds to describe who are the leaders of all of the various tribes. If you look down at verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you. These 12 men will stand with Moses, their elders, their leaders of the various tribes. And you go down that list, and you see, for example, first one listed is Reuben, then Simeon, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, and the sons of Joseph. You know, he talks about a Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali, and each of the names that are given for them. I want you to look, just for a moment, look at the tribe of Judah, verse 6. It says, Nachshon, the son of Menendoth. Nachshon is the Hebrew son at the crossing of the Red Sea, who was the first to act at the crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, you know, the scripture tells us that Israel crossed on dry land. But we say, when we're talking about that, we say, but Nakshan had wet feet. Because when Moses said to go forward, Nakshan thought that they were going to walk on the water. He was even before the Lord opened the waters up. He thought they were going to walk on water. Well, he got in the water and he sunk and he got wet feet. So one of the expressions we say is Israel went across on dry land, but Nakshan's feet were wet. Now, let me tell you why that's kind of a significant thing, because one of the thoughts that was in that thinking, and the, the reason why we take note of Nakshan doing that is there was this idea that God was so powerful that he could walk on water. He could cause you to be able to walk on water. And Nakshan's first thought at the crossing of the Red Sea was, well, a God is obviously going to have us walk on the water and walk across. Well, as you know, Nakshan, he sunk. But with that understanding, here comes that incident at the Sea of Galilee, where Peter and the other apostles are out in the boat, and coming across the water is Yeshua walking on the water over to them. They first think they're seeing a ghost, and he tells them, don't be afraid. And Peter recognized, hey, it, it, it's Yeshua, and he he too wants to walk on the water. He wants to do that thing, that this powerful thing the Messiah can do. And the Messiah says, okay, come on. And so Peter steps out, and at first he's doing okay. But then, of course, you know, the scripture tells us he took his eyes off the Lord, and he sunk, you know, and, and begged for God's saving. He pulled, pulled him up and got him back in the boat. That whole story that we have in the Gospels about Peter trying to walk on the water, about Yeshua walking on the water, it's born out of this belief at the crossing of the Red Sea that God is so powerful, he could cause you to be able to walk on water. And Nakshan was that trusting of the Lord. Now, as it turns out, no, God has a slightly different plan about how to get the the children of Israel. He decided to just blow the waters back, make a a path through the, the sea on dry land so that the children of Israel could go. And it's because of the, I think because of the sheer numbers we're talking about about 3 million people had to cross. And so at the cross of the Red Sea, you have this illustration being talked about through the man, Nakshan, the leader of the tribe of Judah. And he is gonna be like the chief captain of the tribe of Judah, who's going to join with Joshua representing the tribe of Ephraim, and they will be the major commanders going in to capture the land of Israel from that. So as we go a little bit further, we then get into this business about taking the census and it begins to start totaling some numbers up. Now there's a whole bunch of words here. In chapter one, where are totaling up some of these tribes, but one of the things that you need to take note of, God takes the tribe of Levi, who's Aaron and Moses and their sons, and he sets them off to the side so that the 12 tribes of israel that are actually numbered this is when ephraim and manasseh the two sons of joseph are now set up as separate tribes equal to the other tribes this is the moment when jacob had spoke the blessing over joseph's son and he said i will make them equal to my sons and that reality begins to take place when they do this number Ephraim and Manasseh are now recognized as individual tribes equal to any of the other tribes of of the other brothers of Joseph so that's another significant element that we have here there's also as we go through this first count and by the way you're going to discover Ephraim is a big tribe they are not one of the small tribes they are a very large tribe and obviously Joshua was the leader of that let me get you down to finally to chapter two at verse 32. We get the summary total here for it. It says, These are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household. The total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies 603,550. Over 600,000 men that can go to war. Now that's the reason why we think the real audience was really around 3 million, because that doesn't count the women, the mothers, the grandmothers, the grandpas. It doesn't count the children. And if you just saw a simple demographic that was there, if you have 600,000 men, you probably got a greater group of all the other people associated with their families. So we really estimate the, the whole number of people in Israel was around 3 million. But God wants to count the army of Israel. And that's a very important thing. If the people are going to feel secure and they're dealing with neighbors they're going to run into who might be in conflict with them, if you knew, well, I'm standing an army of 600,000 men, I feel pretty good about that. If I run into anybody out there along the way, we we have the forces necessary to, to have an overwhelming force. And by the way, God's going to use this army, to take vengeance on and judge certain peoples that are in the land of Canaan. And he's purposed this. Now, uh, let me let me back up for a second. God purposed Israel to come out of Egypt so it would be a great army, so he could exact justice against the Amorites. And the Amorites are a people that are in the promised land. And they were there when Jacob with his sons were there. And in fact, when Jacob and his sons went down, according to the prophecy that was given to Abraham, I'm gonna send your descendants down there. They're gonna be down there for four generations. And he said, here's, here's the interesting statement. He said, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. See, God was purposing even another issue with other peoples by Israel going down in Egypt. They get built up, they increase, they come out of Egypt, they number the men of war, they have 603,000 warriors. Now, when they first went down, it was just 70. So Israel has been built up greatly by the Lord. And guess what God's going to do? He's going to be leading them through And when they go in to take the land, guess who's going to be judged? The Amorites. That's a very interesting little sliver of information because it tells us that God is really orchestrating events with nations besides just Israel. You know, if you were to read the Bible only, you'd say, hey, well, this God's kind of weird. He kind of zeroed in on on Israel. What about the rest of the world? He's the God of the whole world. God is the God of the whole world. And oh, by the way, if you go in and have the opportunity to study all the different nations, you can see certain elements of the truths and principles that we see God trying to do with Israel. Righteousness exalts a nation, and debauchery destroys it. And we have a world history of nations and empires of those that before the God of creation obeyed his natural laws or didn't obey his natural laws, and those nations suffered accordingly. By the way, you should take note of that if you're part of the United States of America. Because here in the United States of America, when we got formed, our leaders of our nation did so with great faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now in these days, we see the leaders of this nation walking away from the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're walking away from his laws. We're doing our own things. We're we're violating many of God's laws. And so what do you think our future is going to be? The same as all the other nations before who decided to do exactly what we're doing. God is God of the whole world. Yes, he's the God of Israel, but he's also the God of the whole world. And his plan is to use Israel to be a light to the nations so that the whole world can come to know him and the whole world can be part of his future kingdom. That's the reason why we have a gospel. That's the reason why we go out and share and so forth. But before we could make all those things happen, God had to establish the nation of Israel so that he could bring forth King David, that he could bring forth his laws, his rules, so he could bring forth the Messiah and let the Messiah do the work of sacrifice and provide redemption for the whole world. And by the way, there's still one more item that God has planned, and that's called restoration. See, the truth of the matter is, what we're looking at here. This is a giant prophecy. What's happened to the fathers in the past is going to be happening to us at the end of the ages. We're in here describing about this people that are traveling from Egypt to the promised land. You could look back at a macro level and you could say, hey, we're all on that same journey. We're out here in the wilderness of nations. We're hoping that we can get to the kingdom which is the promised land by the way and God's promises that he's given to us of forgiveness of sin redemption and and we'll be have eternal life and we'll have new bodies and we'll be, we'll be living with him in the kingdom you know that's the promised land so in a macro level if you step back and say all this stuff that we're learning in here it's about us and what what's going to be happening with us it's as I started out in this teaching Paul said the things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and instruction. And he's talking to Christians. Upon whom is going to fall at the end of the ages? Well, here we are. We're at the end of the ages. Guess what we're getting ready for? Another Exodus, a greater Exodus, the one that Jeremiah spoke of when he said, The day's coming. When you say the word Exodus, you'll not be referring to ancient Egypt. You'll be referring to when God brings up his people from all the nations of the world, from the North, the South, the East, and the West. Now, I know that's not the current end time prophecy that a lot of Christians have heard. They've heard about the rapture. Well, that's about the resurrection. You know, at the resurrection, those who are still alive. They get lifted up along with the resurrection, but they've twisted that thing around. And they think that's the next great plan. No. The next great plan is there's going to be a future Passover in which we get up and we leave. We leave this Egypt, and it's called the greater Exodus. We'll go into the wilderness of the peoples, as the prophet Ezekiel has said. We will be on this great journey. And by the way, it lasts 42 months. And it goes along with, this book is going to teach, The number of camping places on the Egyptian exodus was 42. The number of places that we will be a part of is 42 months. The number 42 throughout the Bible, thematically, has to do with the wilderness experience of part of the exodus. You can take that anywhere you want to go. That's the subject that you're talking about. God has used that number consistently for it. Now, We're going to do an interesting thing here because when we get to chapter 3, then God is going to do something interesting to go along with the counting. He then wants to know, after we've counted all the people up, how many of them are firstborn? He wants to know how many firstborn in each tribe. And the reason why he does is because there's this interesting rule that God of creation has made. The firstborn of anything belongs to the Lord. Did you know, if you're a firstborn, I'm firstborn, did you know if you're the firstborn and you come out of the womb, you don't belong to you, you belong directly to the Lord, the Lord owns you. And that's part of the fee, the pay for us having life given to us here in the creation. Well, we have all these firstborn in the various tribes. So God has made an agreement with Israel that says this, rather than me take the firstborn away from all of your tribes, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi, and I'm going to have every one of those Levites be a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. So if, let's say, we have 20,000 firstborn in the tribe of Judah, I'm going to take 20,000 of the Levites, and they're going to count as a substitute for the firstborn. Well, they do this count. And interestingly enough, after they do this count, there's not as many Levites as there are firstborn of all of the other tribes. And as a result, the difference is then they have to pay A shekel, a half shekel coin. Let me just take you to this port that really deals with this. Let me start you at verse 44 of chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, and the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And for the ransom of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess, Beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels apiece per head. Now, the total number of shekels for the 271, verse 50, for the firstborn of the sons of Israel, he took the money in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, 1,365. That's how many shekels. Divide that by five, that goes back to the 271 that was missing. We just got something rather interesting showed to us. Apparently, five shekels represents the coins of redemption. That's a thematic number that repeats itself. Let me tell you, you remember how many shekels of silver that Judas was paid for Yeshua? It was 30. 30 pieces of silver. If you divide 30 by five, it comes up with the number six. What's the number six thematically of all of mankind? The price of the 30 pieces of silver was the price of redemption for all of mankind, the five shekel thing. Interestingly enough, and this is done in some Messianic weddings, I've done it multiple times, there is a part of the ceremony when the bride is coming forward to marry a a Messianic believer in which that, the, as the, the bride is standing up there with the groom and the father's still there you know, to hand over the bride, There is a, the handoff is done by the groom has to pay the father the sum of five silver coins for his bride. And actually in the ceremony, the way it works is the bride and the groom that come forward in the procession and we get to the point where we say, who gives this woman to be wed? Father or whatever says it's him. And he's agreeing to do that. Now the groom steps back a step to the back of the bride, hands over distinctly five silver coins to the father. Those are called the coins of redemption. So right there, as they're getting ready for the wedding ceremony, it is said that the groom has redeemed his bride. And by the way, that is the picture of what Yeshua has done for us. He has redeemed. Well, we see the coins of redemption here being played out when we have Levite paying for the firstborn of all of Israel. It's, it's a very interesting concept. By the way, if you ever see that in a messianic wedding, it's really fascinating to see. And it really evokes the picture of how the Messiah, the bridegroom has paid the price for his bride. As you see, the groom is now stepping up, you know, for his bride. The part I like in that is when the father gets these five silver coins, and usually when we do it, we actually get real silver coins. Well, one ounce silver coin, they're nice and big and they chink real good. The father gets them, and after he gets all five coins, he kind of chinks them a little bit so he knows he's got them. When the audience see that, it really cracks everybody up. Now, but it's such a beautiful picture in a messianic wedding as to what has happened. And it all ties back to this counting business and this, the, the half shekel for the counting of people and, and the whole business of the coins of redemption. I want you to take note, though, in the midst of this passage in chapter 3 at verse 39 in particular. It says, All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families, Every male from a month old and upward were 22,000. So he numbered all the Levites that were 22,000. There was 22,271, though, of firstborns in Israel at the time. So that's the number of Levites. You see the name Aaron there? In verse 39, it says Moses and Aaron there. If you get a Torah scroll, and you open it up to this passage of scripture, you're going to see something very interesting in the Torah scroll. Above the name Aaron, there's going to be a set of jots above every level of Aaron's name. This is one of the th- four places in the Torah where the jots are illustrated. Now, I'm not—I can't give you the whole spiel on what the jots mean in the Torah, but there are four instances. First one's back in Genesis 33 when Jacob is coming back and making reunion with his brother Esau. And at the point where Esau kisses Jacob, the word for kisses has jots above it. Then later on, when Joseph is dispatched, this is back in the land, when Joseph is dispatched from Jacob to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock, it says in Genesis 37 that the name of the flock which is the olive tav flock. We say Jacob's flock or the father's flock. It's really the olive tav flock. There's jots right above the olive and Tav. Now this is the third instance we see the jots here in the book of Numbers. The final one is gonna be in the book of Deuteronomy at chapter 29 in the last verse there, where it talks about our sons forever. And that verse, there's jots above that. So what connects the story of Esau kissing, the olive tav flock, Aaron being counted, and to our sons forever, which is a prophecy at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. I don't have enough time to go into all the detail. This is one of the most powerful teachings in the Torah. It's prophetic. Basically, what it's saying is that the conflict that has originated in this world that has gone on for generations. The conflict between Jacob and Esau, that conflict goes forward. It's going to involve the whole flock of God. And that the work of the firstborn, the work of our great high priest is going to be how our redemption takes place so that we can live forever with the Lord. In a nutshell, I just kind of gave it to you. There's more detail that goes with it. It's a very fascinating way. The scribes have put this together to teach one of the great themes of the whole Torah. And in here, in this book of Numbers, right in the midst of all these censuses taking place, he's given this clue that tells us and reminds us about that. Now, it continues on with the counting of the priests and some of the other duties and so forth of how the Levites then transport things, how this tabernacle that had been set up the month before, how God organizes the Levites to transport the tabernacle and all of the elements as they'll be journeying into the wilderness for the remainder of the years. And in these future portions, we're going to learn about why. Why did that generation get judged? Why did they have to die in the wilderness? What happened? What transport with the spies? It's going to recount the history that happened in the book. It's interesting because that particular story could have been given to us in Exodus, but Moses did not give that in the narrative that was given then. He wanted it to be in this book to go along with other lessons that happened in the wilderness. So that's what we had to look forward to in the book of Numbers and our portion, Bar in the wilderness. I look forward to in the following Sabbaths to give you even more Of what the Lord has taught here. Shabbat shalom to all of you.